0: The Business of Agriculture is brought to you by the Georgia Agricultural Commodity Commission for Milk, reminding you that calling nut juice milk is just plain nutty.
1: Greetings and thank you for joining us here on the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason, with an interesting show for you today that you're going to be perplexed and then then excited about because we're taking the complex and we're making it clear because I've got a subject for you that has actually bewildered me for my entire life as a dairy farm kid, talking about economics, but we're also talking about the the thing called milk pricing. I've got the chief accounts for the American Farm Bureau Federation, John Newton, joining me here today today, you might know about John Newton because he wrote a nice little piece for my book, Food Fear. He's on the back right here saying all kinds of good stuff about my book, Food Fear. So he's a friend of the show. He's been on here before, and he is going to explain something that is going to probably shed a lot of light on the complexities of agriculture. Because if you're an ag person, you know that there's some stuff that's like, wow, man, what what is that? How does that work? So I always like to explain the behind the scenes stuff. It's not always just about whether we can grow stuff. It's about, Sell them the stuff so we can make a living out here. It is said that four people understand how milk is priced, and three of those people are dead. So I've got the one guy who's not dead. He's <laughs> he's again the chief accounts for the American Farm Bureau Federation. He's an Ohio State alum. We don't hold that against him, although we do with some. And then he's uh, he's also a friend of the show, John Newton. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, so. I'm a dairy farm kid. I just was at the Georgia Milk Conference because I'm employed by them in a promotional capacity, helping them to sell their product. But the thing about selling their product, I'm doing it from a marketing promotional standpoint, when it actually leaves their farms, and this is not just in Georgia, this is the entire United States of America. The guy that rents my farmland, a dairy farmer, when that milk leaves his property, he doesn't know what he's getting paid for it.
2: Absolutely. Start there.
1: (laughs) Let's start there. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, if well, you sold, if you sold anything, think about it. if you owned a shop, right? You own a shop, and you say, "Hey, I'm gonna sell you this plastic cup that uh, has some Coke left in it, five yeah. dollars." Okay, out the door. When you sell a tanker full of milk, you don't know what you're getting paid. You know, I think the, the the best way
2: to think about what you might even be getting paid is to look at the futures market. You've got futures for class three and four milk uh, sitting out there that may give you some indication. Uh, but really, how they're ultimately paid—it uh, goes into a, a revenue sharing process, depending on where uh, in the country your milk was delivered, or what's called pooled uh, uh, in that revenue sharing pool—and that ultimately determines what your minimum price is that the federal government is going to regulate. Uh, and then, of course, you've got hauling fees that you got to take out of that, checkoff fees that you got to take out of that, other assessments that you got to take out of that. Uh, And if you're lucky, you might scratch with a a quantity or quality premium uh, on top.
1: Yeah. So you just said a whole bunch of stuff. So let's just assume we've got everybody in our sister that listens to this podcast. We've got people that sell seed, feed, chemicals, tractors. We've got people that are in the food processing business. We have friends of mine that are not ag people that look for this as a source of information. So big picture here. I'm just going to paint the big picture and then you can take it from there. There's about 9 million dairy cows in the United States of America, about 9 to 9.3 million cows that make all of the milk the United States of America produces on about what, 30, John, 35,000, 6,000 dairy farms in the United States, I think is the number roughly. Somewhere in the neighborhood. And then within all of that, so people are probably like, okay, I get that. Yeah. You know, they milk the cows, the cows uh, are on these big dairy farms and little dairy farms, whatever you might have. They go into that milk goes into a cooler, typically a tank on on this dairy farm and then a processor takes that in a big, huge tanker truck to a processing plant. It might be owned by a cooperative like Dairy Farmers of America is the country's largest. It's a farmer owned cooperative that owns processing facilities. At that processing facility is where they then pasteurize, homogenize, bottle, separate out solids, do those kinds of things. And then the milk ultimately goes to either a cheese place, a butter place, what have you. And we're going to get into the classifications of milk here in a minute. And it becomes something the consumer drinks. So the consumer is like, I don't know, milk prices. I go to Kroger, it's $2.29 a gallon. What's the big complexity? You threw out a whole bunch of terms. I think we should probably share a little bit of background on all of those, John. You said revenue sharing pool. You said minimum prices, you said hauling fees, checkoff dollars, and then also premiums for solids and contents, which we'll need to get into. So I want to go through each of those before we do remind our listeners, this episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast is brought to you by my good friends at Harvest Profit, a software solution to make your your agricultural enterprise more profitable. Check out harvestprofit.com for a software that you can use that'll work just as hard as you do. All right. We did the whole thing now about how the milk thing works. But as we said, when that milk goes, the dairy farmer says, I don't know what I got paid. They find out after the fact, let's start there.
2: Well, you know, usually around the the 13th of the month, USDA completes uh, all of their calculations in these revenue sharing pools. And, And when I say a revenue sharing pool, imagine two dairy farmers, one that a plant was going to pay them 20 and one that a plant was going to pay them $10 per hundred weight. They combine their revenue and then they each get $15 a hundred weight. So that's the easiest way to describe these revenue sharing pools is that dairy farmers in an area all collectively put all the money they made in a pot. And then they all get a similar price uh, for their milk based on the components uh, in the milk. So uh, and again, that whole calculation process happens uh, mid-month, and at that point, you know what you're going to get paid for the previous
1: month's milk deliveries. You said about a revenue-sharing pool. That's geographical, correct?
2: It's about where, uh, yes, where the milk is is pooled in a particular region, uh, but it's based on where the fluid milk plants make their sales. Uh, that they're regulated in particular regions, but you can have farmers from uh, far and wide across the country that are in revenue sharing pools, uh, maybe on the other side of the country because of how milk is delivered uh, and, and able to participate uh, in these revenue sharing programs. So uh, while it is it is regional, you can have farmers from all over the place in each one of these regional pools.
1: Yeah. And was that set up by the United States Department of Agriculture?
2: Yeah, a- about uh, 90 years ago, maybe. Uh, 1933 Ag Marketing Agreement Act uh, is is really what got federal orders kickstarted.
1: And what else has a federal uh, order? I think fruits fruits, uh, are the other big commodities with a federal order. Okay. So there's a federal order that's been in place since 1933 that says here are these revenue sharing pools for milk. And it's not necessarily like just me and my people in Indiana. It could be me and my people in Indiana, but then also people from some other state, et cetera. And then they say, okay, that's your pool. How many of them are there in the United States? Are these I believe we have a, we, we have
2: 11 revenue sharing pools uh, across the country. California uh, is the most recent one. They used to have a state run revenue sharing pool and they moved to a federally run uh, revenue sharing pool uh, following the 18th Farm Bill.
1: Okay, now here's what's interesting. My milk goes to this uh, cooperative, and your milk goes to um, you know another one, or even a private place. You know, I'm thinking of people, brand names that our customers have heard of. You know, uh, Meadow Gold or a Dairy Gold, or some of those. I'm trying to think here of uh, where they might have gone. Of course, everybody's heard of Borden's, and, and everybody has heard of Dean Foods, which was the other one that went bankrupt a couple of years ago. So I'm selling mine to somewhere different than you but yet that money still gets pooled. Isn't that, how's that working? Isn't that complex?
2: You know, I think the way people describe the purpose of these pools is to stop farmers racing from the bottom, racing to the bottom. So uh, in that example, again, Damien, where you've got $20 milk and I've got 10, uh, if I were to go to whoever you're selling your milk to, I'd say, well, I'll sell it to you for 19. And you'd say, well, I'll sell it to you for 18. And we'll we'll race ourselves all the way to the right point where- 10. <laughs> Right down to 10. So a classical Pareto optimal game theory solution is
1: let's both agree to cooperate and we're both better off. Got it. And so this is uh, very complex. And then I, my milk leaves the farm every day because it's a perishable product. And then I don't know what I got for the, the milk that just left this morning. Because remember, these farms are producing milk all day long, right? That's the thing that our consumer needs to understand. Uh, you know, that milk is coming every guy that milks, uh, that rents my land. They milk three times a day. They're milking, milking, milking. So that truck goes out the driveway with milk in it. When do I find out what I made on today's truck? Uh, today's truck is, is uh, what are we, January? So about
2: mid-February, you'll find out what what you made on January's truck. <laughs> and so you get paid typically like twice a month, right? Yeah, twice a month. Uh, in most places, I believe Florida has three payments a month. Yeah.
1: When I was a kid, we got paid twice a month. I always knew when the milk check was coming, and uh, we, we didn't know for sure what it was going to be priced at, just like you said. It's, it's been this way since I was a child. All right. Um, that milk goes out. And the other thing that we should probably state is there is a bunch of different classifications of milk. Now, this one's another screw thing. So let's just say the person that says, all right, I get it that it's got to be pooled. And they're doing that to prevent a race to the bottom. And they did that through revenue sharing pools set up through the Ag Marketing Act of 1933. All right, I get that. And then they're saying, but Chicago Board of Trade, now known as the CME, prices this stuff because obviously like all commodities, it is bought and sold, traded for futures to guarantee supplies for processors, et cetera, et cetera. Take me there because we hear a thing called class three milk. The consumer's want to say, wait a minute, I don't want to drink that class three milk. I want that, I don't, class three sounds bad. Explain classifications. So USDA
2: has a, a complicated formula to determine the prices of milk within each class of milk. So, uh, class one milk is, are your beverage milk products, your drinkable products. Uh, class two is gonna be your cultured products like your yogurt, uh, your ice cream. Uh, class three is gonna be uh, primarily cheeses. Uh, and class four is, is gonna be uh, butter and, and milk powders. And so, uh, starting at the CME, we have spot markets for cheese, non fat dry milk, dry whey and butter. So each day those those commodities trade in the spot market. Uh, folks that sell cheese or butter are looking at what's happening in the spot market and that's how they're pricing product to their consumers that they're selling cheese or butter to. And so each, each week USDA surveys all these manufacturers of butter, cheese, powder, and say, how much did you sell and what was the average price that you sold it for? And then they take all that information and they put it into formulas. Uh, so class three, again, is based on cheese. So they take the cheese price, and there's a complicated formula to come up then with the protein price. And they use the butterfat uh, prices based on butter. So a it, it, uh, pretty complicated formulas that they have, uh, but they use those to ultimately come up with those class prices.
1: And is that done, you said, by USDA or by like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange?
2: It's done by USDA, so USDA has mandatory price reporting for, for those four dairy products. So each week USDA is surveying manufacturers uh, that meet certain eligibility criteria to figure out how much they sold and what was the average sales price.
1: And that's for cheese, butter, whey, and? Nonfat dry milk. Okay, now it's, there's so much stuff here. And so what they generally, what we see traded is class three. That's what's always referenced on the Chicago Board of Trade at CME Group, right? That's correct. And you also have class four. Uh, what's that? You, you also have
2: a CME class four
1: contract as well. And so I'm out here and I say, but my stuff goes to fluid. Uh, my stuff goes for the stuff you drink. It doesn't necessarily go to these other things. Am I priced? Am I getting more a month afterwards when that truck leaves?
2: So when, when you go into a, a fluid plant, uh, the way fluid milk is priced now, uh, it was changed in the 18th farm bill, but now it's an average of class three and class four. And you actually, we announced those prices uh, six weeks in advance. So the January class one milk price was announced in mid December. Uh, and, and typically those prices are gonna be higher than the prices for manufacturing milk Uh, But because if you go to a fluid plant, you're not necessarily getting paid more. You're getting paid the the revenue sharing average price. And then your fluid plant is paying the federal government. And the federal government takes the money from your fluid plant and gives it to the cheese and butter plants so that they could pay their farmers a similar price that you're getting paid. So that's
1: the revenue sharing pool. And man oh man it's getting a little it's getting a little complicated because here's the thing i'm selling this milk and this is what the average person doesn't get when it leaves my farm i i don't decide whether it's class three two or four or one right not unless you have an individual relationship
2: with a processor that uh, say you sell direct to a cheese plant or you sell direct to a bottling plant but um, you know in the case of, of farmers that are cooperative Uh, producers, you may have a consistent home for your milk, but uh, cooperatives do the difficult job of balancing milk supplies every day around the country. So uh, if a load of milk is needed uh, in in Georgia, say, a co-op can most likely, you know, somewhere in their supply chain, find a load of milk to get to Georgia. The challenge they have is sometimes milk's not needed. Uh, Fluid plants are trying to, you know, take their schedules of processing and align it with grocery store demand. So sometimes you have more milk than is needed in the processing channels, and then you got to go find a home for it in a manufacturing channel. So, uh, moving that highly perishable product around uh, can be difficult, uh, but I think in today's system with refrigerated techniques, with the way we're able to separate milk, uh, it's getting easier and easier uh, to to move milk around the country.
1: Yeah. So again, you're talking about a perishable product and a lot of people, I I wanted to get into this because like I said, of the four people that know uh, how milk is priced, three of them are dead. So that leaves you and I'm a dairy guy and I knew most of this. I'm I'm obviously asking these questions, but I didn't know even some of this stuff that we're getting into because there's a tremendous amount of complexity in a perishable product. And again, you're talking about then that it's not needed in, in your backyard. You know, our stuff went up the road to the dairy processor, but the reality is they were flush because they have more than they needed because that particular week, the grocery store didn't sell as much. So then what do you do with it? Well, let's put it on a truck and send it somewhere else. Within these classifications, there's another uh, component of milk that most people wouldn't realize. Still says it on the gallon jug you grab from the grocery store. It'll say grade A. And people say, wait a minute, Damien, why the hell would I ever want anything that's not grade A? What is grade A, by the way? We got grade A and grade B. How does that factor into it? Well, grade A milk is the
2: only milk that's allowed to, to participate in these revenue sharing pools, but you do have grade, grade B milk out there, and traditionally grade B milk stays in the cheese market. Uh, that's, that's where uh, you generally find that, uh, but, but grade A milk does have to meet additional uh, standards to, to receive that designation.
1: Okay, I was a little boy, 1973, I think it was. We switched over from being a grade B facility. We were your basic midwestern dairy farm. We were a little more reliant on labor and less on capital because of the background that we had. Uh, we had when I was born, we were milking and catch pails, as they called it, and dumping it into milk cans. This is still a system that might be used on an Amish dairy farm today. We put in a pipeline, a better sanitation system, a new refrigerated bulk tank, and we upgraded through some other improvements to becoming a grade A dairy producer. I just explained that for the listeners so they'd understand grade B doesn't mean that necessarily there's something wrong with the milk. It's usually a matter of the processing or the on-farm facilities, et cetera. Is that still the case?
2: It, it is still the case. And, and I'll add that there are some producers that have all of those things that you just mentioned, Damien, but are still grade B because, it, because there's a you know a certification process uh, to go through to get grade A status. And if you know for sure that you're going to the cheese plant, going to get grade A status is just an added transactional cost. So, uh, again, there are grade B producers that have high-quality uh, processing facilities on the farm, high-quality storage, and high-quality milk. Uh, but just because of the nature of their business operation,
1: a grade, grade A status isn't necessary. Yeah, so we switched over when I was a little boy. I remember every day during the dead of winter being out there when all that was going on, my mother, my father, and me, I was not much help because I was four uh, putting putting in all this uh, new stuff. But it was because we wanted to sell to the nearby place and also make more money. So as you said, if I'm a mile down the road from a cheese plant, I, I could just go ahead and still sell grade B milk. But tell me about my pricing. I, what's the deal difference between grade B processor a or, or producer and a grade A in terms of the pricing?
2: Well, I would imagine that they probably still get, you know, some price that's based on what's happening uh, in the cheese market. That that milk just cannot participate uh, in the federal order revenue sharing pool. So any, any additional revenues that come out of that, a grade B producer would not be eligible to receive that. Got it.
1: So uh, another thing about the complexity that we talked about, and before we get into that, I want to remind our listeners uh, that this is a a Business of Agriculture podcast that's both audio, where you get your audio podcast, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever, and also it's a video. You can see John's handsome face He's a Washington, D.C. guy. I mean, he's got to be GQ if he's out there in D.C., right? He's wearing a blazer right now. If you went to my YouTube channel, the Damian Mason channel, you could watch as well as hear the Business of Ag podcast brought to you by Harvest Profit, the software solution to make your ag enterprise more profitable. Go to HarvestProfit.com for your free 14-day trial. Uh, John Newton. As uh, chief of comms for the American Farm Bureau Federation, somehow if you missed that early on, he's one of the few guys that understands milk pricing—the complexity that it is. You talked about hauling fees. Most people don't think about this. Who pays for those?
2: The the the, the farmer pays uh, for the haul uh, for the most part. Now, depending on uh, your your processor or your cooperative, there may be some uh, cost sharing and getting that milk to the market. Uh, but for the most part. Uh, The farmer bears a lot of those hauling costs, and they vary depending on how competitive uh, of a market the dairy is in. If you've got a lot of processors competing for your milk, uh, you may see uh, lower hauling costs. But if
1: there's only one game in town, uh, they, they may pass those full costs on to you. Yeah, so there's those things that come out of your price. Then you said checkoff dollars. A lot of folks that are listening to this probably are aware of it, but some maybe are not. What are checkoff dollars and who pays for those? Those also come out of the farmer's milk check. I believe it's an assessment uh, on uh,
2: on milk of 15 cents uh, per hundredweight. A portion of that money goes to state promotion efforts for dairy. And then a portion of that goes to the national checkoff uh, to promote dairy product consumption uh, in the U.S. And then the the national checkoff, I believe, also funds uh, some of the, the export promotion programs as well. So that's, that's where your checkoff dollars go.
1: Yeah, 15 cents per hundred weight, meaning per hundred pounds of milk sold goes to the checkoff, which is actually what's paying me and my uh, small level for me and what I'm doing in Georgia to help them promote their product is for promotion and education for the product. Then you talk about premiums and components. A lot of people wouldn't understand that. If I sell a bushel of um, wheat, Um, it's probably going to be based on what the price for a bushel of wheat is, but there's also contracts where you can get paid on the quality of the wheat. Tell the listener about premiums components when it comes to milk.
2: Well, so, so what farmers are actually producing isn't milk. It's the components in the milk. They're producing butterfat. They're producing protein. uh, They're producing lactose. And and then dairy processors use those uh, to, to make the finished dairy product. So, A producer that has higher protein milk uh, or higher butterfat milk is gonna see a higher price per hunter weight uh, than a producer with with lower component levels. Uh, You can also see quality premiums on things like somatic cell count. I know we're getting deep in the weeds, uh, but but there can be quality premiums there. There can be volume premiums. If you're delivering truckloads at a time, you may get a premium versus somebody that's delivering
1: uh, every other day. What uh, John was talking about, somatic cell count is something they've been testing for years and years and years when they pull samples from your bulk tank, uh, from your milk. Uh, you're talking about, uh, explain what that would mean because you're getting a premium if you have low counts of bacteria counts, things like that, right? Yeah, so, so
2: if you have a, a, a bacteria count less than 350, uh, then, then you get a premium and that's built into most of the federal order pricing formulas uh, around the country. And you do see Uh, Dairy farmers take pride in those low somatic cell counts um, uh, and and their ability to consistently do it day in and day out. So there's a premium that can be had there.
1: Yeah. And there's a certain quality issue. And then obviously the processor would like a, a certain quality to begin with. All right. You are very active on LinkedIn. I keep up with you there. I'd encourage my listeners to keep up with you there. But you've been putting stuff over there about PPDs. Now, all right, we got the PPP—that's the Paycheck Protection Program. That's a <laughs> thing in response to the, you know, the pandemic. We got PPE—that's response to pandemic personal protection equipment. <laughs> and then you're right, out here talking about PPDs, and like, oh my goodness, this is getting complicated. What's PPD mean? I don't know. I'm down with OPP, Damien. So there's a.
2: All right. Uh, you know, the, the, the PPD is is it's complicated um, and, and essentially the best way to describe uh, these negative PPDs is uh, the the component value of the milk, the value of the butter fat, the protein and the other solids in the market is greater than the value that you get in the market through the class one, the class four and class two. So, when you have that scenario where it's upside down, so to speak, the federal order has to do an accounting uh, exercise to get it to balance. So, they have these negative PPDs. The money's in the marketplace. It's not like the processor's holding that money back from the producer. It's just that in this year in particular, the milk is in the cheese market. So, uh, the high value cheese milk, the high value class three milk, uh, was, was so high this year due to the Food Box, family Farmers' Food Box program uh, and other issues that uh, that Class three milk didn't participate in the pool. But when you looked at all the components in the pool, you, you got to balance it, you got to rectify it, and they did it through these uh, negative PPDs. And, and they represent a, a, a pretty big deduction uh, on farmers' milk checks, but that, that money isn't in the federal water. It's not at USDA. Uh, in this case, in particular, the money sitting uh, in the pockets of the cheese plants.
1: A couple last questions. First off, would that be to the person that's a commodity producer of you know, corn or something? They talk about basis. So the listener that's saying, man, this is getting a little complicated, but it always really does make sense. Just like economics always do make sense when you go back to the very basic level. A basis in terms of our uh, commodity trading, the place down the street might give me 25 cents less than what the Chicago Mercantile Exchange says the price is because they don't need it, or they have to absorb that 25 cents for their profit to justify putting it on a train and paying for the freight. That's why a basis exists, meaning the spread between what the price is on the board and what I get when I drop it off. Is that kind of what PPDs are, kind of like the basis that you would have if you sold a bushel of corn?
2: Uh, it, it's it's similar to that, and it creates you know very excessive uh, basis risk. Uh, but but in, in this case, it's you know, you, you've got to sharpen your pencils and really get into how these revenue sharing pools work. Uh, I, and in the case of, you know, corn and, you know, discount to the Chicago price, uh, you know, I think the closest example to that for dairy is, you know, folks with higher components are, are going to have higher prices. So you got basis risk on your components. Uh, you have basis risk on some of these premiums. You have basis risk on your hauling charge. Um, You know, if you're doing a grass fed dairy versus organic dairy, you got some basis risk there. Uh, But these PPDs this past year, they've they've been uh, record large and, and has really, you know, made folks sit up and pay attention to just how complicated this whole system really is.
1: So speaking of that, is it going to be less complicated one year from now? Is it going to get to where even people like me with a dairy farm background can more easily articulate it to the person uh, or even understand it ourselves, or is this where it's going to stay? You know, so,
2: you know, here's the challenge. And if you think milk pricing is complicated, uh, would you believe, Damien, that, that dairy farmers can't sit down and vote on how their milk pricing is determined? (laughs) Uh, So so to change these milk pricing rules, you got to go to a federal hearing. You got to present evidence to USDA. They got to write a rule. And then USDA does a referendum where they ask people to cast a ballot on whether they're for or against the federal order uh, changes. And dairy farmers, if you're, if they're members of the co-op, the co-op votes for all of them. They can't cast a ballot. Only independent farmers can cast a ballot. So it's, uh, you know, it's very difficult to, to get consensus on issues especially with regional differences so uh i i bet you uh i bet you uh, pretty high odds that it's going to be the same uh, next year as it is this year maybe some tweaks around the edges but nothing major
1: does it does it benefit who's it benefit to have it be this complex processors government you know why customer
2: consumer you know, there there are benefits to this system uh you know but but a truly competitive market would would take the reins off, uh, let farmers have, you know, some ability to negotiate their prices. Uh, you know, like you said, can you believe that you don't know what you're getting for that that bulk tank of milk, uh, in some cases for, you know, 45 days after it left your farm? Right. Uh, you know, you, you've got delayed pricing contracts and things like that at the elevators, but I'll tell you what, if I pull up and want to drop corn off right now, I know that I'm getting more than $5 a bushel for it. Why can't we figure out a way to do that for milk? Uh, you know, I've been banging the drum for a long time. This is way too complicated. Uh, but, so do you think, do,
1: you think does, does, do we make it so that it doesn't require this complexity even to change it? Do we Do we say, hey, you know what? This is going to require government action. We need to simplify this. Is that ever going to happen? You know, the, the, the challenge is, you know, when you have a system, like we said,
2: Damien, that's you know, what is it now? Uh, 90 years old, Eighty-eight years old, you know, <laughs> you know uh, it's, it's, you had a, a house of cards and you just, you know, you keep putting in little additions on top of it. Uh, you know, you put a, a deck on the roof and you've got a big backyard and you've been tweaking this thing for 90 years. Uh, you can't just take that framework out. Right. Businesses, business decisions have been made based on this framework where farms are located, where, multi-million if not billion dollar processing assets are located all of those decisions are made on top of this highly regulated system so i think the problem if you go to a free market there's going to be a lot of scrambling to figure out what the new market looks like and a lot of farms might not make it through yeah and even the
1: processors like you said because now it's like we've we've worked into this system to to build and develop and create our infrastructure and my god now you go and change it. it's like we just put 100 million dollars into this processing plant based on the parameters that we were yeah so it, it changes everything interesting i don't think it'll change do you no no i i think we you know we
2: can work to get some tweaks but um you know you know i, I forgot to even tell you that each of those 11 orders have different rules uh, associated with each of them. So uh, it's it's one of the most complicated commodities. Uh, and a mentor told me, you know, uh, a long time ago, they said, stay away from the white commodities. Those are the most complex. So being that's your, your sugar, your rice, your your uh, your dairy and your cotton.
1: That's really an interesting thing because I've told people that about the sugar thing because I've worked for those people a bunch. And I said, man, there's a lot of complexity to that whole pricing and that infrastructure, like you said. So, but you make a good point. The reason it can't just be changed fell swoop is because you're going to devastate a whole bunch of businesses that have built their processing and their infrastructure and their production around the way the thing is structured now. And so you you go in and cause billions of dollars of, of devastation to try and make it less complex. Anyway, he's got to go because he's a busy guy. His name is John Newton. He's the chief of counsel, the American Farm Bureau Federation, friend of show, also endorser of my book, Food Fear, which I very much appreciate. He'll be back one day to talk about something else, maybe less complex than this. So, uh, hey, keep things square out there in Washington, D.C. for us. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to join you. Betcha. Thank you very much. Till next time, you're listening to the Business of Agriculture podcast brought to you by my friends at Harvest Profit, the software solution for your agricultural enterprise. Check out harvestprofit.com. Till next time, it's the Business of Agriculture.
0: The Business of Agriculture is brought to you by the Georgia Agricultural Commodity Commission for Milk, who reminds you the easiest way to get eight grams of protein, drink one glass of milk. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Business of Agriculture, please share it with your network. Be sure to connect with Damien on LinkedIn, like his Facebook fan page, and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. For speaking inquiries or to purchase Damien's books, Food Fear or Do Business Better, go to DamienMason.com.